The Fat Boy Show. You're listening to The Fat Boy Show. This beautiful Tuesday morning, it is the 12th of October, 2021. And I hope you're doing great. I hope you've settled into the week now. It is Tuesday after all. After the bumpy ride that was your Monday yesterday, I hope now you're feeling a little more stable and ready to take on the rest of the week. Well, on the Fat Boy Show today, I'm honored and excited to be talking to Dr. Eva Mugisa, who holds a bachelor's degree in pharmacy from Makerere University. And currently, she's the supervising pharmacist at Evitha Pharmacy in Chiwatale. And so why is Dr. Eva Mugisa here with us today? Well, she is here with us to talk to us about her view on government policy regarding COVID-19, the restrictive measures that have been put in place for the better part of the last two years, about uh, the vaccine mandates that we've seen uh, popping up, the vaccination drive itself, and really the wider questions related to the pandemic, uh, which has raised a lot of questions and a lot of anxiety. Here on RX Radio, we do try to have conversations with you about this issue. And on the COVID moment, we ask you how you're dealing with the situation. And it's great. Now, not everyone is always in 100% agreement with the government's approach on these matters. And so it's sometimes important to hear the other side of the story, to hear what they think, what they have to say, see if what they're saying makes sense, ask them questions. At the end of the day, what we want is to broaden our scope of knowledge so that all views are taken into account. And I believe that shall help us to make more informed decisions, regardless of which direction we take. So let me welcome to the Fat Boy Show, Dr. Eva Mugisa. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here today. Don't you agree that uh, uh, conversation is important? An exchange of ideas? Absolutely. Very important, especially for us as medics. Um, when it comes to medics, though, um, there's mostly been one official position. Really, there. Uh, I don't like to use the word party line, but okay, let me just say official line. There's the official line on how COVID is to be understood, how it is to be perceived, and how it is to be tackled. Now, as a member of the medical fraternity, uh, what is your general opinion on the government's response to COVID-19? so far? Uh, thank you for that question. And uh, we too, as medical workers, are quite concerned about the the trends that are emerging in the management of COVID-19. From uh, 2019, right up to where we are today, there's been a lot of changing uh, outlooks and perspectives on therapy, on prevention, on the different measures that have been taken globally, as well as in Uganda. And we believe that there's always, as medics, we are uh, custodians of of people's hope in a sense, as far as their uh, as treatments go, as far as medical advice go, and basically healthcare. So we we have seen the need to review how well we were doing, how well we're doing now compared to how well we were doing back in 2020 when Uganda had its first official bout of COVID-19 infections. Mm -hmm. So as we stand today, we have seen the government play a vital role in helping um, basically handle this uh, pandemic in Uganda in all corners. And to a degree, we are, uh, we, we as medical workers in the different disciplines have had a role to play in this. Uh, the clinicians have been at it, the pharmacists have been at it, the nurses as well. And there's been room for participation from all of us. But speaking as a pharmacist, we have observed 
certain clinical information about molecules that are being innovated, that are being rolled out. And we have had to go back to the drawing board and review how well we're doing from the tangent that we began with, mm-hmm. how well we're doing today. Okay. Yeah. Well, so when it comes to, you know, the uh, messaging on COVID from the government, we've mostly been hearing from the policy makers, mm-hmm. okay, the medical bureaucrats uh, who tell us that their information and their opinions and recommendations is based on their best assessment of the available scientific literature. Mm-hmm. You, on the other hand, you are a pharmacist. So you are operating on the front line, but a different kind of front line. So as opposed to, let's say, a nurse or a primary care, you know, uh, medical professional, you're the ones people go to to get the medicine. Yeah, correct. Now, strangely, in the all of COVID, that's the one area where there's been, uh, I would go as far as say silence. Um, like you really don't hear from the government any recommendations as to, you know, what medications uh, should be taken by those who... Uh, let's say, test positive with COVID and also start to uh, express symptoms. Is this because um, it should be from... Would that kind of um, recommendation simply come from the doctors? So, like, if I fall sick, I go to the doctor and it should be the doctor to tell me what drugs to take? Do you think the government has some role in educating uh, the public as to what the existing medication is? Or do you think there would be a risk associated with that? Because, you know, you don't want people just walking into a pharmacy and say, give me these pills, these pills, the other pills. I think it has to be under the guidance of a medical professional who would have assessed the condition of the patient and advise accordingly. So in terms of the government's messaging on treatments, what is your opinion? Uh, My take on this is that uh, first off, we have seen as a medical fraternity uh, information being disseminated by the Ministry of Health. However with the bulk of information out there we understand that there are there's only so much that a specific stratum of the multi-tiered nature of of um, healthcare administration in the ministry of health mm-hmm. is able to handle at a time and that is where we need to have teamwork the clinicians like you've said the doctors and the nurses who are on ground and they're actually administering medications and taking vital signs and all of that stuff and and they are, most of their work is largely what we call inpatient so within a health facility mm-hmm. okay and they're like boots on the ground, if I could use that word. Huh? They're mm-hmm. like soldiers in the field. Um, pharmacists also have a role to play. Um, and ours has basically been um, looking at the medication at a molecular level, mm-hmm. um, looking at its interaction with the body, what we call pharmacology. Okay, And, and, and while most medics, anyone who has had um, paramedical or medical training, do look at pharmacology as a, a, a like a foundational module in mm-hmm. their training pharmacists have the prerogative to analyze okay the efficacy the safety and other parameters of the molecules that are being used for therapy so in that sense Pharmacists have a, a, a niche. They have a responsibility as far as the drugs are concerned. Now, the just, just just to interrupt you, yes, um, and isn't it true that even when it comes to policy recommendations, wouldn't the experts, the academics, and the bureaucrats in public medicine and public health be relying upon information from the pharmacists 
as to what seems to be the efficacious uh, treatments. Uh, do you feel like you've been uh, allowed to be a part of that conversation or do you feel like they've mostly ignored uh, pharmacology, the, the pharmacology field and have instead relied on other sources for information when it comes to deciding what policies to recommend? Well, I do feel that pharmacists could have played a bigger role than we have played so far. I know that the, 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 the manner in which the second bout of COVID in Uganda the infections were managed had more pharmacist involvement at community level than at the f- in the first bout in 2020. This is true. Yes. And what I noticed about the second bout was that because there was such an absence of messaging from the government in terms mm. of home care, for example, yeah. or even just general treatment. Okay, if you get COVID, what do you do? Because with the second bout of COVID is where we really started seeing people getting sick yes, and many yes. people dying. Uh, and because there was an absence of information from the government, a lot of people were exchanging information amongst themselves. You would see yes. in a family WhatsApp group, uh, a family member might say, hey, guys, like they will forward to you uh, one of those forwarded messages that people are sending mm-hmm, to each other mm-hmm. saying, Hey, if you have COVID, take this, take that, take that, take this, you will feel better. Take this ginger mixture, take these vitamin tablets, take this zinc and all this stuff. And people were starting to self-medicate, which I think prompted the government to get involved. And I think it was about two or three months ago that they began actively doing messaging on, on home care. And to me, that is a testament to the fact that they realized that there wasn't much in the way of information for the public to digest on what to do when you get COVID. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, uh, Dr. Eva Mugisa, um, what are the currently medically recommended uh, treatments or medicines for mm-hmm. COVID? What are those? When people get COVID, what are the medicines they're usually prescribed by their doctors? Okay. Uh, well, we have what the Ministry of Health issued to us um, in, the, in the communities uh, as guidelines, uh, what what we call first-line treatment, second-line treatment. And these are protocols that have been given to us by the Minister of Health to clinicians, to pharmacists who are based in the community mm-hmm. on, on home-based care. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the first-line medicines that were, were issued by the Ugandan Ministry of Health included azithromycin, 500 milligrams, given once daily for five days. Um, there was vitamin C, uh, one gram, mm-hmm. yeah, to be taken once daily, um, and zinc, either zinc gluconate, which is a little bit hard to find on the market, or zinc sulfate, 20 milligrams, which is readily available on the market as total zinc. Uh, these days, that comes in a combination of, in, a, in an effervescent a tablet that dissolves in water. Yeah, I, I took those capsules. <laughs> it's like about 30,000 shillings. Oh, yes. And there are these capsules of about 1,000 milligrams per capsule, yes, right? Yes, of vitamin yes, C yes. combined with zinc. Yes. So there was uh, that. There was azithromycin, vitamin C, and zinc. Uh, there was mention of um, dexamethasone, which is a steroid anti-inflammatory. Um, but the dosage for that varies from patient to patient. Okay. And uh, in in areas where there was no azithromycin available, they recommended using um, amoxicillin combination with clavulanic acid, what we know as clavulin or augmentin, mm-hmm. augmentin um, 
or amoxicillin where the combination is not available alongside your basic paracetamols for fi- for pain and fever management yes. um and syrups to decongest the chest and the nose you know so that was what was given to us we put that into practice mm-hmm. and we found that in the initial 1 to 2 weeks mm-hmm. both us who are in the community stationed as pharmacists interacting with incoming patients and our colleagues who are pharmacists in inpatient settings clinics and hospitals mm-hmm. we started to put the protocols to use however we began to see a great and drastic decline in the performance of this regimen in management of our patients just a moment but in as far as you are aware what were the results of this regimen were patients recovering from their covid uh, infections the ones that the one that was given by the moh yes uh, that was, combination of uh, mm. that that modality that combined those yes, medications yes, you just mentioned yes. how were people reacting to it those that were infected were they uh, recovering quicker mm. or what was going on a lot of our patients ran to get azithromycin for just in case reasons so they bought it over the counter mm-hmm. it's a it's an antibiotic a type of antibiotic mm-hmm. and the people who took it found a bit of relief okay and since it's supposed to be taken for 5 days uh, they they found that the first one were these people with positive tests uh, like covid uh, tests or these are people who were negative uh these these were work, walk-in patients within the, in, into the community pharmacy so, so you we would could not, not tell okay yeah who who had a, who had done a, a test a PCR test or any other test okay and it was just we couldn't screen them out okay. and and a lot of fear was going around so sometimes symptoms are psychosomatic and that's simply a big word to mean that if you're f- afraid you might start feeling something that's actually not there <laughs> yes <laughs> so we had a lot of people who started to feel cough eh? that was not there small a slight irritation yes. in the throat they're like oh my god sneeze. i'm, I'm, I'm you know, finished they sneeze i have covid i have fever the joint pain this is covid so in in absence of proper you know access to testing yeah uh, people just basically decided to 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 medicate but using the guidelines given by the ministry of health Okay so I guess my question is so would you uh, view that now that uh, for a period of time that has been the modality that was handed mm-hmm. to you to to implement in the communities mm. uh, do you feel that that was effective uh, no I do not I feel it was missing a vital component what was that that was missing uh, we we came across some protocols that have been used in the US that mm-hmm. involved a combination of azithromycin zinc and vitamin C but in addition to either hydroxychloroquine or in its absence or mm-hmm. in in availability ivermectin ivermectin yeah. that has been uh, discussed widely in uh, western media i don't know if mm-hmm. ugandans are following the debate but like most mainstream media in the west has been very critical of mm. I- ivermectin and they have often cited clinical studies that seem to show that it's not uh, efficacious so you're saying that in in your practice and in the times that you've uh, given it to your patients the the people that come You're saying that you registered a greater success with that uh, combination with that modality? Yes, indeed we did. And I actually started to use this combination 
uh, with ivermectin on people right in the apartment where I stay. <laughs> so it was right next doors. It wasn't a patient far away from me. But people have said that ivermectin, uh, when you watch CNN, they'll mm-hmm. tell you ivermectin is uh, for animals. Yeah. If it's medicine for animals, why is it being given to humans? Well, that would not really be correct uh, to say that it's for animals only. What could be correct is that it is also used or it has been used in animals. However, the indications for its usage in animals or the reasons, the medical reason for which it is used in animals is completely different for the indication for which it's, it's been used in humans. All right. So then the simple question arises, if in your experience you are uh, registering those kinds of uh, positive results, and uh, and I think you mentioned to me earlier before we had this conversation that I think you treated about 300? Yes, yes. And uh, patients and they recovered using yeah, this modality? Yeah, I did not lose any. Okay. Wouldn't the next simple step be to forward this information to the Ministry of Health or mm. whichever you know public health institution for them to take it into account perhaps commission wider studies on it and after you know the studies show to their satisfaction that the modality is effective it can then be recommended widely uh, why why isn't that something you'd pursue that is definitely something that we collectively as pharmacists who have been frontline in the community would like to do uh, however, we have challenges with regard to the the hurdles that come with documenting and quantifying this information into a paper. Okay, so it's not simply get people, you know, say I've treated 300 people and then write to the Ministry of Health. Right, and say, right, right. Is. There is a protocol, there are steps, there is what we call an institutional review board that has to review questionnaires because you have to get consent from the people who have used the medication to use their their treatment record to, you know, verify certain claims that you're making using this treatment therapy. Well, that may be, but I feel like at the very least, it should prompt some curiosity on the part of the medical bureaucrats, public health bureaucrats to say, oh, okay, so here we have some pharmacists who seem to be, uh, you know, giving this medication to some of their patients who are infected. And these are the results they are reporting. Isn't it therefore worth a look? Like at the very least, Trinity prompt that question. So my question is, what has what has been their reaction? In as far as you know, you're concerned, do they have any curiosity in this in, in hearing from pharmacists like yourself about these uh, alternative uh, protocols for treating COVID, or are they st- sort of stuck on the whichever paradigm has either been handed to them from the World Health Organization or whichever body is the one uh, <laughs> bringing the money? Uh, well. Um, <laughs> um, Yes, there has been curiosity in the efficacy of ivermectin and other medications really that are out there that have antiparasitic properties such as ivermectin and have shown efficacy whether in, in, in clinical studies or in real-time um, uh, outpatient cases mm-hmm. um, against coronaviruses. I can say that there's curiosity because we began to see, after we started to administer over-the-counter ivermectin to our patients, we began to see prescribers actually prescribing it in medical forms. But wait a minute. Okay, speaking of uh, prescriptions, what mm. about the, the doctors themselves, the mm. actual physicians yeah. who the 
these people will first go to uh, to seek their advice. So, is it through your suggestion that they recommend these uh, treatments? So, when someone walks into your pharmacy, yeah, and they they and maybe they ask for uh, you know azithromycin, which probably in your head triggers the idea that ha, this one might be here because he thinks he has COVID. <laughs> Is, is that the point at which you say, by the way, there is also this you might want to try? Is that where you intervene? I guess I'm trying to understand um, where, I guess, where where the beginning point is for any suggestion of any medical modality. Mm. Shouldn't it start with the physician of, you know, rather than the pharmacist? Um, it's, it's, it's not one or the other because we work as a team, yeah? So the pharmacists are supposed to give information to the clinicians. Because the clinician or the physician is the one supposed to diagnose me, not the yes. pharmacist. If I walk into a pharmacy, you're standing on the other end of the counter <laughs> asking me what I want, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, is that a complete process as, you know, me actually sitting before a physician who maybe checks my temperature or uh, checks my throat or my blood? Uh, wouldn't that person be more qualified to recommend to me mm. what medicine to take? And he'll write me out a prescription, which I then bring to you, and then you sell mm. me the medicine. Mm. Is it for you to tell me, take this, take that, take the other? Okay, so uh, in, in pharmacies, we have over-the-counter medications, which are simple medications, and then we have prescription-only medicines. So all medication in a pharmacy is not within the same category. There are some which will only be released to you as a patient or the person, the patient who sent you, upon presentation of a, a, a prescription that is not, by the way, a piece of paper eh, with just the name, uh-huh. but it's actually on a headed, you know, addressed medical form with, yes. so that you can trace it back. Mm-hmm. And that information is supposed to be fed into National Drug Authority prescription record books that are issued to every pharmacy. Correct. So in pharmacies, when someone walks in, we have the over-the-counter and then we also have the prescription. But during this time when there were so many infections and the hospitals were actually overwhelmed with numbers, Mm -hmm. yeah? And the feedback we got from patients with COVID or suspicious of COVID or had someone at home who was, they'd been in contact with COVID, Mm -hmm. whatever the case was, people actually got to a point where they were afraid to go to hospitals. They were afraid to go to hospitals for fear of exposure. Mm -hmm. They were afraid to go to hospitals for fear of the medical bills that were really, really going through the yeah, for some cases. Uh, to, to get a bed in hospital for COVID, how much was it per day? Five million in some places? In some places, yeah. I can't speak for all, but yes, we have had cases of people who actually thought we were a clinic and they wanted their person discharged from, let's say, you know, Paragon Hospital and brought to us to, to manage, you see. So people would walk in uh, and 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 they would they they prefer to have community-based treatment and management because of those reasons um, from hospitals. They they would prefer to come to the pharmacy instead of hospitals. So okay. when someone walks in and they ask for vitamin C, we are supposed to ask what it's for mm-hmm. because the doses of vitamin C, for example, just simple as vitamin C, mm-hmm. can be harmful in high doses and safe in lower doses. That's true. Because when I bought my vitamin C dissolvable capsules at the pharmacy, they even told me, you know, if if you're infected, take uh, one tablet a day. If you're you're just trying to 
for immunity, take half a day, mm-hmm. is what they told mm-hmm. me. Yes. Uh, so is that an example of what you're saying, of the point, how you might sometimes intervene uh, yes. in asking questions of these That's people who That's an walk. entry point, definitely, for us. We ask what they're using it for. Is it for an adult? Is it for a child? You know? Or azithromycin, for example. The normal... Uh, usage of azithromycin, the regimen is 500 milligrams uh, uh, once a day for three days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and once it's when it's given once a day for five days, that is for COVID uh, prevention, or or okay, not prevention, treatment usually, or when you suspect exposure. Right. right? So. You could tell a lot from the way people would walk in and ask for medicines, and that's how we'd be able to screen out uh, that this one suspects that would initiate a conversation okay. with the patients. And we'd know, oh, this one suspects COVID. This one, you know, maybe it's just doing prevention. So with respect to that, um, just so that we can kind of summarize this section. Yes. So as someone in the field of uh, you know pharmacology or pharmacist, mm-hmm. and you're interacting with these patients and suggesting to them uh, certain treatments, which in your experience and in as far as you've interacted with uh, your customers, you're finding you, that you've seen uh, a lot of success yes. uh, with a modality that would include, among other drugs, ivermectin. Um, what is the way forward on that? Because uh, uh, obviously, as we speak, and we're going to get into this in more depth ahead, uh, vaccination is the sort of the big thing now being pushed. Uh, there seems to be uh, an opinion that the vaccination issue will prevent you from getting affected. The various vaccines we have been told have various efficacy rates. Obviously, a lot has been learned since uh, since then, since those announcements were first made, which yes. I think, in all fairness, should prompt further questions. But um, in as far as the treatment modalities go, do you feel that you are not satisfied with how the government is approaching it, how the government is doing the messaging? We certainly feel that there is more that could be done. Um, For starters, the information that has been disseminated about drugs like ivermectin, uh, something needs to change about that. And we do not want to do it from an anecdotal standpoint. We'd actually like to do it uh, from science that is evidence-based. All right. So as a pharmacist, you're saying, hey, medical bureaucrats, this is how we're handling our clients and patients. We're seeing such and such good results. Therefore, please take it into account and perhaps um, make it, uh, you know, recommend it uh, at a nationwide level. Would that be your position? Yeah, they say follow the science. Mm -hmm. So now we are actually affirming that the science is giving us some interesting results. So it would be prudent for us to be more flexible to to the possibility that what we knew in the beginning about COVID was actually wrong. And there's other emerging information that's coming out that's helpful, that's hopeful, and we should receive that Mm -hmm. for the betterment of the treatment of patients. Okay. Well, you're listening to The Fat Boy Show on your number one station, RX Radio. And today we're talking to Dr. Eva Mugisa, uh, who is a supervising pharmacist at uh, Evitha Pharmacy in Chihuatule. She's currently working in a community uh, as a community uh, pharmacist where she has had experience in outpatient management of various ailments, including COVID-19 infections uh, during the recent bout uh, of infection. You know, the second uh, 
you know, the, the second wave, as it were, that uh, besieged us in the months of June and July of this year. She's had experience as a teaching assistant at Makerere University College of Health Sciences in the uh, pharmacognosy unit. I learned a new word today. <laughs> she also specializes in plant chemistry, cosmetology, and alternative uh, systems of medicine. And she joins us today to discuss uh, the Uganda COVID policy uh, in general. All right. So when we get back, I'll be asking her uh, what she thinks about the current uh, ongoing vaccination drive and uh, what to make of it. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Uganda's King of Radio, unleashed and unplugged. The Fat Boy Show. Hey, it's the Fat Boy Show here on your number one station, RX Radio. Good morning, Fat Boy here. And, uh, yep, oh, it's just been an interesting morning. Interesting conversations all around. Today on the Fat Boy Show, we're joined by Dr. Eva Mugisa. She's a person that holds a bachelor's degree in uh, pharmacy from Makerere University. Uh, she is a supervising pharmacist at Ivitha Pharmacy in Chihuatule. And uh, as she works as a community pharmacist, she's had experience in outpatient management of various ailments, including COVID-19 infections uh, during the recent uh, uh, COVID uh, you know, second wave that hit us in the months of June and July of this year. She's got experience as a teaching assistant at the Makerere University College of Health Sciences. Is it true, uh, Dr. Eva, that you were supervised by uh, Mr. Covidex himself? Yes, that is true. Professor Oguang? Yep. Uh, was uh, your supervisor while yes. you were teaching at Makerere? No, and, uh, when I was doing my, when I was writing my undergraduate thesis. I see. Yes. Obviously, uh, you know, Dr. Oguang or Professor Oguang has been widely celebrated as a medical innovator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Covidex just uh, became a hot cake. <laughs> And uh, I don't know that uh, clinical trials have been done uh, yet on COVIDX. I know that the government uh, pledged money to go towards mm-hmm. research. Do you have any information on that? Uh, I do not at the moment. What I do know is that the, the, the production plant was uh, was expanded. Okay, So with with bigger capacity, then there's more tests that can be done on, on well, lab tests on its efficacy before you can translate it to the phase of clinical trials. Okay. Well, we'll wait to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier, uh, Dr. Eva Mugisa um, was uh, telling us about the various uh, you know treatment modalities for COVID-19. As a pharmacist, of course, people walk into her uh, pharmacy seeking uh, medication to treat uh, COVID or suspected COVID and, you know, she is there to offer them the medication and uh, she has also been recommending to them a medicine called ivermectin and uh, we were talking about how she feels she would like for the government to be more receptive to information from the pharmacists on what treatment modalities seem to be having an effect, a positive effect Mm -hmm. uh, within the community. You know, it's one thing to raise awareness about SOPs and restrictive measures and uh, the guidelines but maybe at the same time, it's good to let people know about effective treatments. Yes. And, and, and maybe on that note, the government's not being as vocal. And uh, in doing so, if they did, I think they'd alleviate a lot of the psychological stress that people are going through. Because people don't appreciate it. It's one yeah, thing. Anxiety. It, yes, there's a lot of anxiety. It's one thing to talk about the virus and its effects, but also the messaging, if you don't handle it right, will cause a lot of distress among yeah. the wider public. Mm-hmm. And as far as you seem to know, COVID is a treatable illness. Yes. 
it has a, an extremely high survivability rate. Yes. Which you wouldn't easily tell when you hear the messaging. Sometimes it does seem like it's, you know, uh, it's the incredible Armageddon. Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, you get it, you die is what sadly a lot of people think. And yet if they understood what treatment modalities were there, um, first of all, they'd have more relief. Yes. And perhaps it could inform public policy on the restrictive measures because and that's what we're going to uh, go into next so for a period of almost two years now yeah. the government has instituted a, a range of restrictive measures including a few times those been a you know full lockdown uh, and then you know the restrictions were incrementally lifted to now where we uh, can go on public transportation but limited number uh, to certain places you have to wear masks and um, there's still a curfew bars still closed schools still closed what is your opinion on the government's um, policy on, on, on that on the lockdown what's your take on lockdown do you think lockdowns are effective I believe that the first lockdown in 2020 in the first bout of COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh did serve a purpose with regard to um, containing what we did not know much about. See, there wasn't a lot of information about the corona SARS-CoV-2, this particular strain of coronaviruses, because coronavirus is actually a family of viruses. Mm-hmm. But this particular strain, this particular type, not much was known about it uh, 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 until 2019 and 2020 in Uganda mm-hmm. when we had the first uh, bout of, of infection here, mm-hmm. nationwide infection. So, in absence of of of, of adequate data uh, on on the virus, on on its or its the pathophysiology, or simply the process by which it 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 causes infection in the body, and how to manage it, what therapeutic agents are available, what diagnostic tests can we do? In absence of that information. The lockdown did have a part to play. However, where we are today, two years in, uh, after the COVID-19 infection, there has been so much science, so much clinical research, so much attempts at innovation that it's not prudent for for decisions to be made uh, while ignoring uh, review of this information that keeps emerging on a daily yeah. So mm. lockdown did have a place at the beginning, but it's presumptuous to translate the same two years down the road when so much more information is coming out. And a lot of this information actually is is, is hopeful because there's, there's uh, therapy options. There is uh, more information that this works, this doesn't work, this doesn't have to be a death sentence. It's preventable, etc. Now, knowing what we know about COVID two years down the road, Mm. We know who the most uh, highly affected demographic is. Yes. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, we know what some of the viable treatment modalities are. Yes. Uh, it seems like one need not have a lockdown to mitigate the spread of uh, what really is a highly transmissible illness, and especially the new variant even more so. Mm-hmm. And the variants that follow, and there will be several more variants, yes. will probably also be more infectious than the ones before. So to say you're going to put a cap on it might seem like a far-fetched, really a, an illusion. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can easily it's contain like something wind, like this. You know? 
I think the approach should instead be one of management. Mm-hmm. And given what we know about, um, you know, effective treatment modalities, as you shared with us earlier, we know who the at-high-risk groups are. Do you think the better approach should be to take that into account and to formulate a policy that would allow society to function, uh, to allow for people to have their freedoms, while at the same time, um, I guess, implementing a program that would cater to serve to protect the most vulnerable members, uh, you know, the, the people that would be most at high risk of uh, falling ill or succumbing to COVID? Uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on that? Given what we know now about COVID, mm-hmm. uh, if not a lockdown, what would you recommend in the event of a new wave? Okay. What uh, would you think is the better option the government should take? Okay. Uh, some of the points that you've brought up um, are a good end, uh, a good starting point for my response. You have said that there's going to be most probably there's going to be more variants, and it's not because you have a crystal ball and you can see these. It's things. just the nature yes, of yes, the mute, the the rate at which the virus mutates, as we have seen with so many other viruses, mm-hmm. they are not stable. They keep changing, and um, if that is the case, when we look at the at the at the um, m- Measures to mitigate this pandemic that are locked onto, let's say, one variant of the virus, hmm? and locked and fixated in that. If we, if we, if we do not um, become a bit more versatile and a bit more open to see how we can mitigate even future mutations eh? mm-hmm. and make it more holistic to combat, let's say any strain of variant that this thing mutates into. Mm -hmm. If we do not extrapolate uh, our our intellectual quotient collectively as the medical fraternity Mm -hmm. in in Uganda, I think we're heading for a very, very big problem. It's a ticking time bomb. So to that end, um, there's been certain phenomena, there's been scientific evidence that has shown that certain phenomena actually offer immunity to most other variants because they are more uh, the coverage over the, the, the particular protein markers of the coronavirus yeah not mm-hmm. particular one variant but the coronavirus that there's there's certain um, forms of immunity that that cover that and and give you protection even for future infections as opposed to the ones that are retrospective for the variants that we've had before. So how is that kind of immunity uh, generated? Is is it through prior infection? Because that's been the talk lately, Mm -hmm. that prior infection offers you greater immunity for um, future possible variants. We know that the literature now seems to be showing, uh, Mm -hmm. the research from Israel, that prior infection seems to protect... um, against not just Delta, but I think some of the other other variants, much better than even the vaccine might. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now we're seeing that uh, the vaccines are only offering um, protection lasting um, six months, at least for the Pfizer, Mm -hmm. which we were told was the best one with the, I think it was first advertised with a 95% success rate of preventing infection they said you have a 95% chance of not getting infected if you get the Pfizer vaccine now we've since learned that this is not actually what's very happening true. you know Israel and I think Israel is mostly Pfizer isn't mm-hmm. it it's, it's one of the most highly vaccinated countries mm-hmm. they're mostly on the Pfizer vaccine they're leading actually 
Right. Yeah. And now they they have a very high rate of what are what's being called breakthrough cases. Yes. Now, obviously, in light of that new information, we must then uh, think about how we want to proceed as a country. Should we not then rethink what our policy is going to be? And how quick do you think our public health officials need to be in processing this information and coming up with a policy that is reflective of this reality? Because it seems like currently we're marching full steam ahead based on the old information. Mm-hmm. On, on the presumption that the vaccinations would produce a 95% protection rate against uh, mm. infection, mm. which mm. now we know not to be the case. Yeah. And we also now know that it, the immunity conferred will not last even beyond six months, at least for the Pfizer. Yeah. So what's your take? How, how do you think the government needs to deal with the new information that comes out in its formulation of policy? I think uh, one of the first things is for us to actually, um, <laughs> let me say, accept defeat, yeah, with regard to the the, the initial extrapolations uh, as per efficacy of these vaccines. The the concept, and I'd like to I'd like to make this clear: the concept of vaccination and at its conception was very noble, okay, but from the time that it was innovated till where we are today, there have been so many changes from the mutation of organisms to the additives that they put into the vaccine besides what is supposed to give you the, the antibodies. And there has been, uh, it's it's been dangerous to presume on history, yeah, and carry that over onto the new technology that has been used to produce the Pfizer uh, vaccine, Johnson, and all these other mRNA vaccines. Okay, so these are two different generations. That they're, they're they're completely different, you know, as part the way they work. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, understanding that putting up a white flag at some point is is really good and modest. It's 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 prudent for us. Well, I think we're caught up in a system of. Uh what is it? It's called uh, essentially the sunken costs fallacy where if you're so far invested into something, you've gone so far in a particular direction, you might as well see it through to the end because too much has been invested in it. Um, and so when you look at the public health sector and, and the bureaucrats and the technocrats, I feel like they've invested so much in um, advancing a particular way of looking at the situation. I feel like at this point, they'll be very reluctant to sort of review uh, their policies. Um, and, and, and for the government uh, to then say, oops, sorry, guys, we got it wrong, I think will be very embarrassing. So they're, they're just going to continue ahead with the existing policies. Um, and maybe if there's a new wave of infections, they might once again implement a lockdown. That, that would be very unfortunate. But we actually have a lot that, that could help us. Uh, turn the tide of what's happening um, with regard to to the vaccination goals and what's happening out there Uganda does not at at this moment produce any COVID vaccine in-house although the president uh, has hinted the president of Uganda has hinted on uh, setting up a vaccine producing facility yeah he said that uh, when we interviewed him in uh, January <laughs> yes using uh, an adenovirus uh, to be able to to basically follow the mRNA technology mm-hmm. okay um, so there was plan to do that um, however like I said putting up the white flag eh, helps us a lot because you see, the vaccine producers, in as much as maybe the sunken costs and, you know, that fallacy that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, 
there are liability issues that even our lawyers cannot really, it, 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 they can't put a finger to. The, the, the vaccine producers do not want to be held liable for anything uh, that could go wrong with these vaccines. All right. right. And the government, from from at least uh, what Dr. Atwine once said on, 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 on a talk show, the government has had to sign documents upon receiving the vaccines that, you know, basically no liability on the side of the of the supplier, of the, of the, of the maker of the vaccine. Right. And then there's the consent form, okay, that comes to the patient, where basically you are signing saying, I will not hold the government liable for anything that happens to me. So already we see a train of, 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 of events that, you know, something about that is not right. And it's very hard to put a finger on. And on those grounds, I feel it is the prerogative of the government and the Ministry of Health, okay, mm-hmm. to gather information from from the what we call evidence-based medicine. What is actually happening as opposed to the theories, as opposed to the theories and, and, and what was forecasted prior to work with the clinicians and people like myself who are in practice, mm-hmm. okay? And make a case for other alternatives because at the end, at the end of the day, someone who maybe gets an adverse reaction and cannot um, hold the government liable will there'll still be some kind of liability that comes maybe not directly because, for example, the health system will be overwhelmed. You see, sure. and 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 you know indirectly there is a liability that comes, and we people on the inside in the medical fraternity. We'll be on the receiving end of this. Well, um, there seems to be a push uh, in several sectors. It's not yet nationally mandated, yes. but in several sectors mm-hmm. where they are mandating it as a condition for employment. We're seeing them do this for teachers yes, and also for students who wish to attend class. They're making it mandatory for you to have obtained vaccination. So you're concerned that there seems to be a chain of denial of liability and responsibility. Yes sort of leaves a bit of taste in your mouth. It's like, so you're forcing me to take this. Uh, you're giving me but no I'm choice. But I'm on my own in this. And it, should anything happen, then no one else is accountable for yeah, it but me. Yeah. I feel like if that's how it's going to be, then at, at best, you should be left with the right to make that decision. You know, so that just just like, you know, you, you can enter, for example, if, if I decide to uh, do a business deal with someone and I've signed no contract... You know, if, if I choose to, to to not sign a contract and do a deal with someone, it, should anything happen, I've sort of accepted the risk to myself, mm-hmm, haven't mm-hmm. I? Then if I were being forced to do a deal with someone without there having been a contract, to which really that would amount to uh, either coercion or, you know, something like that. So would, would that satisfy you if at the very least they left it to the individual to decide for themselves uh, what their choice on this matter would be? Yes, it would. And uh, I also think so because of the fundamentals of true medical science, whereby we are bound by the Hippocratic Oath and we are bound by the Declaration of Geneva as medical workers, that we will respect consent, that we will respect confidentiality, that we will not uh, engage in patient over treatment and what we call medical nihilism and that is basically counting your religious or maybe traditional 
the, the reasons that you have, maybe strong religious reasons or faith reasons, not to consent to a specific treatment. All the, I, I, I would like to think that all the doctors in the Ministry of Health, not just in Uganda, but worldwide, and even the doctors in the medical fraternity within mm-hmm. Uganda in the fields, are bound by that oath, which we actually make before God. So, you know, um, we are consistent with for God and our country, mm-hmm. you, you know. So you are bound by that oath to to respect consent, to respect confidentiality, and, and also to, to uh, keep growing to keep growing in your in your medical f- field to look after yourself and if there is any information that you know it will be helpful to the the medical practice going forward to further generations mm-hmm. we have the prerogative to share that so on those grounds um yes patients Still, you know, your body is... You're the proprietor of your body. You are the sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe if you're married, your husband. Perhaps. <laughs> well, don't be too sure about that. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. A wife can even accuse the husband of... Uh, Other know. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but as an individual, as a patient, you are the sole proprietor of your body. So you get to call the shots. What is put into it and what's not put into it. So you have a responsibility to know this as your right. Mm-hmm. We doctors, whether individually or collectively at a level of, you know, pharmacy, clinic, or maybe even in administrative structures such as the Ministry of Health, we are meant to know where our boundaries are as far as um, implementing some of these treatment regimens. We can put them out there, but the patient still reserves the right to say no. And if it is for reasons, for example, of their faith, being, you know, not in being in agreement with this medical treatment regimen before them, or its reasons of, for example, a medical history that makes them not a candidate for the vaccine, you know, or any other justifiable lawful excuse that can actually be documented, mm-hmm. yeah, there is room for, to request for an exemption. But there need not even be an excuse. On principle alone should be enough. Yes, the just principle. on the principle of bodily autonomy. That that is correct. That, that should settle the question. I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's. <laughs> why that's why true. do I have to explain to you other things if, if it should be my decision? You would think, but uh, some might say, uh, Doctor Ivan Gisa, that you know, um, what we are dealing with is a deadly pandemic, and uh, the constitution seems to give the government sweeping powers uh, to when it feels appropriate to, uh, I guess, suspend some of your liberties uh, if it deems it to be in the public's interest to do so. And would not a vaccine mandate be part of such uh, an instance? I, I believe that a vaccine mandate would be uh, uh, would fall in that category. If the government believes, based on the best advice it's received from its scientists, that this is the way to protect the country against a catastrophe, a medical catastrophe... Mm. Wouldn't they be doing the right thing to mandate it? Um, not really. I wouldn't agree with that uh, because, at least with with the case in point, okay, of COVID nineteen, the initial prerogative of the Ministry of Health of any nation, including Uganda, was to protect its people, working mm-hmm. with the information that was available at the time. 
two years in, that data has changed. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a common saying that is going around saying, follow the science, follow the science. Mm-hmm. I would paraphrase that and say, follow the true medical science. Because scientists all over the world are not sleeping. Ugandan uh, medical scientists and, and people in the practice are not sleeping on the job. They are looking for ways. And the data that has actually emerged um, has shown us that there are phenomena like natural immunity that gives a stronger immunity, as an immunity that is superior, 13 times, 13-fold superior to vaccine-induced immunity for many reasons. Now, is uh, would our health experts in Uganda be aware of this information or do you think they feel that the information is disputed and thus not worth considering at this time? Because, I mean, you could be saying that that's what one study says, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't there need to be more studies for that to be... There actually are at least 30 studies that are done and some of them are quoted by NIH. You see, this information is out there. yeah. And I really would not like to... to, to I really would not like to... Um, you know, point the finger at my colleagues for, for not educating themselves on these studies. Okay? Because I, I believe that they've made their best efforts to be of part of the solution. Yeah? Um, but there is so much research out there and there's so much, so many emerging trends that should correct our course. It's like when you're driving, you know, if you get to a place and the road is blocked, you're going to have to find another route around. <laughs> so you cannot just say, ah, I'm going to get the car and climb over this yeah. roadblock and talk to the LDUs to move this barricade. You know, it's like a GPS. You have to change course sometimes. And I believe what is key for us right now is changing course. We might have exactly. started out if, well. If, if Google Maps is directing you deep into a bush, maybe you need to see if the Google Maps is working well. Yeah. Because uh, there are times I you know, tried to follow the directions to a T. I know it's taking me and before you know it, you're in a swamp, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes you have to use your wisdom and say, okay, you know what? Maybe the direction in which I'm being taken may not be the best. So let me pause, uh, get my bearings, reorient mm-hmm. myself to the reality around me and then chart a course that seems to be more on the right track. Yeah. And you think if we did that as applied to medical science and public health, you think we'd be much farther along in yes, absolutely. in bringing absolutely. this crisis to an end. Absolutely. Because this information is not anecdotal. This is information that has actually been um, journaled in, in medical uh, um, journals, in in. Uh, peer-reviewed, most of these articles are peer-reviewed. The Israeli um, study that you quoted on earlier mm-hmm. has uh, has been done just this year. So it was conducted between January and I think April and then there was a second observation between June and August. That was just I think last month or the other month, huh? mm-hmm. but this year. So this information is raw and fresh, but its credibility comes from uh, precedence that has come from several other nations, including Ireland, including mm-hmm. right in the US, where they've, they've taken uh, this phenomenon and quantified it in the lab. You can actually get draw blood from a patient, take it to a lab, and identify certain antibodies, and you can isolate certain cells, what we call T T cells, you know, their type of white blood cell. Mm -hmm. You can actually uh, quantify how many of those. In fact, let me give you an example. This, you know, HIV uh, infection, when they say CD4 cells, Mm -hmm. that is 
a quantity that is a marker of how many types of a certain white blood cell they have in their blood. Right. And we do CD4 cell counts here in Uganda and that's an index for many HIV patients to see how well or how badly they are doing with regard to their the, how the thriving of their immune system. If we already have precedence of such tests, why would it be so difficult to quantify T cells in a body? You can but, quantify, you can on. identify this. Yeah, but uh, is it you see cuz if you're if the argument is that the studies are showing that prior infection confers let's say immunity, um mm. is the argument that okay, therefore people should get sick? That would sound absurd on its face. I think that's not just sick, it's dumb. Uh, and we don't recommend people to go out there and sit next to someone with covid and inhale yes. deeply so that So you want to inhale. you want people to uh practice the SOPs so that they don't get infected isn't that the ideal situation no actually i'm more inclined to go with the herd immunity phenomenon okay where uh, a large number of people within a society let's say within the nation uh, have had this infection not because they went looking for it okay but it just you know they by just got yeah by circumstance they life. just got yeah they just got sick and they were well managed clinically okay they recuperated and now they're they're up and on their feet and they have antibodies all right mm-hmm. so you know there is this phenomenon called herd immunity where if let's say 60% or maybe even less you don't need 60% these figures vary from one uh one pathogen or one type of virus to another mm-hmm. but with with regard to covid if we looked at the recovery rates of, of, of covid infections in uganda that have been actually mentioned by the minister of health on and it's been televised we have a 90 at least a 90 it's 99% recovery rate and when you look at the and number that's the of, official figure yes, this isn't like yes, speculation yes or, okay worst case scenario if it has changed it's still above 90 mm-hmm. okay and that accounts for so much it says people are actually recuperating I personally believe from my clinical interaction, my interaction with patients in the pharmacy who have opted out of hospital, you know, treatment, mm-hmm. inpatient treatment and opted for outpatient treatment in community pharmacies, mm-hmm. yeah? That many of the casualties, many of the deaths that we had, yeah, were because of clinical mismanagement. And that is not a vote of no confidence to my colleague my colleagues out there in the practice but also I mean it speaks to the state of our medical yes, infrastructure yes. really generally that's what speaking, it speaks to generally which speaking, was the point of the lockdown was supposed to help to reinforce and to strengthen and boost that exactly, capacity exactly. which would prevent that kind of either negligence or malpractice uh, you know from the medical exactly, professionals exactly so you know from from my interaction with 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 patients and their their preference to having outpatient treatments that says a lot about how well they have they have recuperated and combined with the recovery rates that suggests that we actually have reached herd immunity okay, okay. and um that i know probably someone will have to quantify that and check that out in the epidemiological studies but with such a high recovery rate it's 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 prudent to assume that we have actually achieved had immunity now does that take the place of of, of sops etc etc um i believe that still you can still be careful or yes, try to it's, minimize it's like, your exposure it's like having a bath in the morning eh? mm-hmm. i mean no one has to tell you to do that okay so if you feel like you've been around a person who's 
has a lot of snot in their nose in a taxi. I mean, it's just hygienic to wash your hands. Eh? But I'm talking about the lording over of these SOPs, especially in certain places like places of worship, you know, where there's organized services, where there's amenities such as toilets and hand wash basins, where the children are in one place and the parents are in, in the other, where you can actually get in contact. The pastor knows who's okay and who's not. Yeah. So I believe we have, we really at a point where we need to review what we started out with. Okay. okay? And like the GPS, change course. There's good news out there. I mean, it's a message of hope. Wow. Well, uh, and I would agree with that. I think the message of hope is what should be uh, encouraged. Mm -hmm. I mean, I give credit where credit is due. I mean, the government has done its part. uh, And yeah, we're safe in assuming that probably they are acting in the public's best interest. I think at the same time, they should be open to reconsidering alternative ways of approaching the situation. I think maybe, first of all, let's not do copycat syndrome. Just because one country did one policy doesn't mean we slap it on here. Some of them do may it. not even work here because of our economy and our that's, healthcare structure. That's right. Yeah. And I think the government should be more open to hearing the views of other professionals in the field and other stakeholders like the, you know, the pharmacists and mm-hmm. so forth. I do wish there was a kind of forum. I feel like it doesn't exist. I feel like the president enters the room, there's the public health officials then there's one or two scientists and that's it um i feel like there's no wider consultation we or, actually don't know who the scientists are. we don't even know but who we the are told are. and we'd like to go with government you know? scientists so yes. and so why not put that guy on tv and have him engage and I, and I think that will also go a long way in helping to build trust mm-hmm. uh because a lot of people are left to assume you know to You see, once a lot of it is shrouded in secrecy, you just leave room for speculation and assumptions, Mm, mm, which mm. doesn't foster a lot of confidence. Mm. Uh, And I don't think that's good for the country. So, yeah, so let's have an open dialogue, open conversation. Let the government involve other stakeholders in some of these decisions that are being made. I feel like that way there'll be less uh, hostility or resentment uh, towards some of these policies that are Mm -hmm, being implemented. mm -hmm. And knowing what we know now and what we are going to continue to know and learn about covid I think uh, it can only help us move forward and uh, come out on the other side where life returns to a semblance of normalcy. You know, they say new normal. Is, is that a thing you're a fan of? No, I'm not. You want the old normal back? Yes. <laughs> and maybe it's not, uh, you know, out of reach, the old normal. Maybe it might come back in some fashion, you know, maybe with some modification. But we to, are hopeful. But to imagine mm-hmm. that there'll be a complete paradigm shift and the way the world as we know it will never be the same again, that to me seems a bit too grim for mm-hmm. my liking. Mm-hmm. Same. Wow. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Eva Mugisa. Our guest today on the Fat Boy Show, well, we've had a lengthy conversation here and, uh, you know, very, very informative and very thought-provoking. Uh, obviously, from here, I want to go up and read some more on this stuff and so should you. Uh, you know, these are just uh, ideas here being exchanged, opinions, uh, do your own research, you know, consult the best sources, listen to what the experts say, check that against other experts also and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, see what makes most sense to you. And let's all work together to deal with this crisis. Thanks so much, Dr. Eva Mugisa. Where can one find you if they want to get uh, more information? Um, I'm the supervising pharmacist at Evetha Pharmacy, Chiwatule. So uh, that is on Ntinda Nalia Road, 
and uh, I, I supervise there basically every day of the week from Monday to Sunday. Eveta Pharmacy. Yeah. She went yeah. to live. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Eva Mugisa. She's been our guest today on the Fat Boy Show. Don't go anywhere. More great music ahead. Tech, games, sports, politics, jobs, money, relationships, movies, music, and entertainment. All the cool things in life. Life. We're listening to The Fat Boy Show.